Today's reading comes from Galatians 4, 21 to 31. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit, shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. You may be seated. As you're seated, I will pray. Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for this text that informs who we are in Christ. That we are no longer slaves, but that we are free. That we who stand in Christ have received a beautiful freedom. And ask you today, Lord, that we would experience more of that. Lord, as we look at this text, I ask you that you would open our eyes to see your glory, that you would open our ears to hear your word, and that you would open our hearts to believe and trust you that we can walk in this freedom too. And we pray that all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This morning we are going to talk about how we relate to God. We're going to talk about how we relate to God. And I want you to ask yourselves this question with me today. Am I acting like a slave who is afraid of God? Or am I acting like a child who is assured of my father's love? Don't tell yourself the answer that you know is right. Honestly, ask yourself, how are you relating to him? Ask yourself, am I working to try and gain God's acceptance in my own strength? Or am I resting in the welcome and the acceptance that I've already received as a gift through faith in the faithfulness of Jesus? Ask yourself, how am I relating to God? Am I relating to him like a slave who was not sure of the response that he will get from his master? Or am I relating to God like his child who knows it's the father's good pleasure to give me the kingdom? Because it is the Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. That's what Jesus said. Am I trying to prove myself to God in hopes that I'm good enough to deserve his love? Or do I know that I'm already loved and already accepted and already found securely in him based on nothing of my own doing, but as a gift of sheer grace? Do I know that? Man of God, woman of God here today. Do you know that God delights in you? Do you know that? This is something I often ask people when we sit down for pastoral care or counseling meetings. One of the things I like to ask is, as God looks at you right now in this moment, what is the expression on his face? What's the expression on his face as he looks at you right now? 
If you're in Christ, it is not a look of scorn. It is not a look of contempt. It's not a frown. It's not a look of disgust. If you're in Christ, it's not a look of frustration or disappointment. If you're in Christ, you're beloved. He smiles upon you. He delights in you. He delights in you because you are his. And because you are his, he delights in you. It says in Isaiah 62 verse 5. It says, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. You know, as a pastor, I get to officiate weddings. And uh, as I stand up here, and usually the groom stands right next to me right here, and the doors in the back, they open, and everyone stands, and the bride walks in. I don't have the response from the groom. And he's like, meh, I don't know. (laughs) If there was, I'd shut it all down right there. I'd be like, this is not happening today. Sorry. You're going to need to figure this out. Nice dress, though. (laughs) The groom rejoices over the bride. So God rejoices over you, his people. But do you know why it's so difficult to live from a place of knowing that you're loved by God? There's difficulty in this at times. I think it's because at times, try as we might, we just don't understand grace. What we understand is reciprocity. I do something for you and you do something for me. That's not grace. See, I think we don't understand grace very well. I think what we do understand is earning. I go to work, I earn. I prove myself. Then you can trust me. We understand that. That's not grace. See, God's mercy in our lives is seen in the fact that we don't get the punishment that we deserve. But God's grace in our lives is evidenced in the reality that he gifts us what we don't deserve. It's not reciprocity. It's not earning. It's grace. And because we don't understand grace, the way that we relate to God can get hijacked at times. And we run from him and we stop relating to him as children of a father. We start behaving like slaves before a master. This is what happened in Galatia, in the churches of Galatia. That's why Paul's pastoral heart is aching for his people. It says in chapter 4, verse 19, it says, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Do you see this? He's aching for them. But when I say that we don't understand grace, I don't mean that we can't offer up a coherent definition. We can do that. What I mean is that we don't understand it on a foundational level. Right? Very few relationships in your life, if you think about it, operate on grace. So the interpersonal relationships that we have, whether that in our family, whether that be in our workplace, whether that be among our friends or the educational institutes we're a part of, whatever that would look like, we, we don't have a lot that is primarily defined by grace. So our relationships look different. And what happens is, is we can lose sight of our relationship with God Mediated by grace in Christ. And we can start to act like slaves again. It's because that's how our different relationships function. It depends on what culture you're from. What background you have. Reciprocity is built into certain cultures more than it's built into others. Earning is built into some cultures more than it's built into others. So you've got to ask yourself the question of how you're relating to God. Do you know he loves you? 
do you know that you're loved? Not just you as a church, as a corporate people. Right? It's easier to love a group of people than it is individuals, right? I ask, I love you, but you're frustrating me. <laughs> no, no, it's easy. You're not just loved as a people. He loves you and you and you and you and you and he loves me. We're loved. But do you know why? Why are you loved by God? Let me tell you, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 to 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. Do you want an answer why the Lord loves you? Because he loves you. But why? Why does he love me? Because he loves you. You go, okay, that's great. Why? Because he loves you. And you can ask the why question for as many days as you have in this life. And the answer will come back, because I love you. Why? Because I love you. Why did you choose to set your eternal affections on me, O oh Father? Because I love you. But why? Because I love you. You see the point? Why does he love you? He doesn't love you because you're, you're good at your job. He doesn't love you because you go to community group even when it snows. Right? And he doesn't love you because you're the person in the workplace who walks into the kitchen after everybody else has had their lunch. And you know that one horrible person you work with who opens a can of tuna and then just leaves the remnants of it sitting on the counter. And it just starts to smell like fish everywhere. And it's just sitting there on the counter just festering and smell and stench and you rinse it out and recycle it and just go, well, he just must have forgot. He doesn't love you because you're doing that. That's good because tuna stinks. Be that person. That's not why he loves you. He just loves you because he loves you and and because he loves you, you're lovely. He loves you because that's who he is. It says in Ephesians chapter two, it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works. Look at this, so that no one may boast. He doesn't love you because you're awesome. You're awesome because he loves you. Your salvation in Christ is entirely a gift of grace. So wherever you came from this morning and whatever issues you walked in with, whatever baggage you're bringing with you, take a deep breath. It's going to be okay. Yes, that is my introduction. I just missed you this week. And I just had this affection for our church. Not just for us corporately. I just want us to live out of the love of God. This text that we're looking at today from chapter 4 of Galatians, it's a strange text. But it is asking us the all-important question, how do we relate to God? Do we relate as slaves or as sons? And and I'm using sons the same way that Paul's using sons in this text, which is an inclusive word, meaning those who have received an inheritance. Those are who are children of God, who've received that inheritance of the firstborn. Are you slaves or are we sons? Here's how I want to frame it. Three points. Old Testament history. New Testament allegory. And our present reality. We're going to look at Old Testament history. We're going to look at New Testament allegory, and then we're going to look at our personal reality. 
our present reality. Old Testament history, verse 21. You okay? Verse 21. Don't worry, it gets better. That was also a joke. This is not good. Christ City, are you with me? You're loved of God. I'm struggling with you right now. I've got to be honest. All right, here we go. Verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Okay, this is Paul. This is what he's saying to the people in Galatia who were desiring to be under the law. He says, hey, you people who are trying to add to the work of Jesus by demanding that people are doing works of the law, you who desire to be under the law, do you even know what it says? That's what he's saying. He's getting a little punchy as if he hasn't already been a little punchy from the very beginning of Galatians. He's saying, I don't think you even know what you're talking about. So let me break it down for you. He says, verse 22, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. We're looking at Old Testament history. You can get all of this from Genesis chapter 16 to 21. So you can look that up, read that later on. But let me give you an overview. Genesis chapter 12, even go a little bit further back. Genesis 12, God tells Abraham that he's going to give his offspring a whole bunch of land. Abraham says, I don't even have any kids. And he says, don't worry about it. I'm going to give your offspring a bunch of land. Genesis 15, God comes to Abraham again, tells him his reward is going to be great. And Abraham says, that's great, but I don't even have an heir. I don't have a child. I don't have a son. And God says, yeah, yeah, I know that. Don't worry. Your reward's going to be great. Just be patient. Genesis 16, instead of waiting on the promises of God with patience, Abraham and Sarah go ahead and they do something else. They decide in their own strength that they are going to bring the promises of God to bear. That they are going to, through their own work, through their own effort, through their own impatience, they are going to manifest the promise of God somehow in their life. In their own strength. This is what it says, Genesis 16, verse 1. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abraham, Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. He went into Hagar and she conceived. Notice that this is the son who was born according to the flesh. This is the son who was born according to the flesh. Then in Genesis 17, God reminds Abraham that he and Sarah, that they jumped the gun on seeing the promise come to fruition in their life. And God doubles down on the promise that he made that she, Sarah, would bear a son. That's what it says in Genesis 17. God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham, the father of faith, laughs at God. Okay, that makes me feel a little bit better about myself. In Genesis 18, God speaks to them again. He reiterates his promise to them, and this time, it's Sarah who laughs at God. 
Genesis 21, her son is born. And they name him Isaac, which basically means he laughs. This is the son who was born according to the promise. We've got a son who was born according to the flesh, and we've got a son who was born according to the promise. See, Christ City, this is what happens in our life. Unbelief creeps in when we grow impatient with God. Unbelief creeps in when we grow impatient with him and we think he needs to work something out on our timeline and we think we're maybe better able to make it happen on our own and so we jump the gun and we run ahead and we do whatever we want apart from his promise, apart from his timing. We do things out of the flesh. Verse 22 says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. So we've got a son of the slave woman that was born of impatience and unbelief. And we've got a son of the promise who was born with the intervening miraculous work of God. That's the Old Testament history. That's what happened. Here's the New Testament allegory. Verse 24. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written... Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Paul says you can interpret this allegorically, that there is a child of the promise, or a child of the flesh and a child who was born according to promise. He says we can interpret this allegorically. An allegory is a picture or an allegory is an analogy. Paul is not saying that the Old Testament account is allegory. He is saying that he is constructing an allegory based on the Old Testament history. It's important for us to note. The son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh. The son of the promise Son of the free woman was born according to the promise. So Paul uses this as an example to make a point. He says we can look at it like two covenants. We've got Hagar, the slave woman, who bore the son of the flesh. He says she's equated to Mount Sinai. That's where God met his people and gave him the law. He also says that she is like present Jerusalem, which would have been under the law at the time. But look at verse 26. It says the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. He's contrasting the earthly Jerusalem with the heavenly Jerusalem. The present Jerusalem when he wrote this with the new Jerusalem. Picture of heaven. He's saying you've got an earthly city equated with law. And you've got a heavenly city that is our true home. See, in the way that the language is being used, when you claim a city as your mother, that is a declaration of citizenship. It's a declaration of citizenship. It says, this is my place of citizenship. This is where I find my home. And Paul's saying it's actually not there in South Galatia. <laughs> Our citizenship is in heaven. He, he says it explicitly to Philippians. It's in uh, chapter 3, verse 20. He says that we are citizens of heaven. That the new Jerusalem is our home. 
says that our primary citizenship, though we are Canadian citizens maybe, our primary citizenship is not here. Our primary citizenship is there. And we live out of that as citizens of the kingdom of God. Look at verse 27. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. That's a prophecy from Isaiah 54. And Paul's applying this again to the current situation. His point is that there is a barren woman, Sarah. And because of the promise that God made to her and Abraham, she, who we could also call the desolate one, was going to become the mother of more people than Hagar. He's saying something significant is going to happen in the life of Sarah through the child of the promise, that kings would come from her. Now, you know we're getting serious about this because I've got a chart for you. We've got Abraham, and he's got two ladies that he has a son with. He's got Hagar, who was the Egyptian servant of Sarah. And then he has Sarah, his wife. Go to the next slide. Hagar, a picture of slavery. Sarah, a picture of freedom. You can keep going. We've got Ishmael, who is the son of Hagar, who is the son of the flesh. And we've got Isaac, who is the son of the promise. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel, and so on. We've got Isaac, Abraham's son, the son of the promise. Keep going. We've got old covenant, picture of old covenant law keeping. And Paul says we have a picture of the new covenant where we receive the promise by faith. That we don't act on our own to try and do something in our own power, but that we wait upon the promise of God and thereby find freedom. You can keep going. It says that Hagar is a picture of Mount Sinai where God's people received the law and the present Jerusalem, which was under the law, whereas the people of Sarah are citizens of Jerusalem above. New creation. Freedom in the gospel. You can keep going. Children of Hagar are slaves. The children of Sarah are free. We can keep going. We can see that the old covenant was a natural attempt of man Where Abraham and Sarah said, well, this isn't working for us. Why don't we intervene in the situation and try something a little different, thereby to bring about the promises of God? God said, Sarah, you're going to have a son. And she said, I don't know. Why don't you just try to do that with Hagar? Man-centered attempt. As opposed to the supernatural intervention of God in the situation, where a 90-year-old woman has a son. Now, I don't know about you, but I know some 90-year-old women. Right? I can explain how this works. Menopause and the whole deal. That's not normal. There's something miraculous about the conception of Isaac. Points forward to one who was to come. Keep going. In the old covenant, as pictured by Hagar, we have slavery of law. And in the new covenant, as pictured by Sarah, we've got freedom in Christ. Keep going. The picture of Hagar under the old covenant, we have dead religion. And the picture of Sarah in the new covenant, we have the gospel of Jesus. I think the contrast that is being painted here is a picture of dead religion that's man-centered. The picture of the gospel of Jesus. Christ City, how are you relating to God? We have Old Testament history. We have a New Testament allegory. And then we have our present reality. 
This is what it says in verse 28. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as that time, just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Okay, in the allegory that Paul develops here, if we're in Christ, then we come to him by grace alone, through faith alone. We're children of the promise. And what Paul's trying to tell the Galatians is this. He says, at the same time as you understand yourselves as children of the promise who have come and found freedom in Christ, you can expect that there will be children of the flesh who come to persecute you. He's calling those who want them to walk back into slavery, back into obedience under the law in that way, where it's Jesus plus law-keeping. They want to walk those people back into bondage and slavery. He calls them children of the flesh. And he says that they will persecute those who are children born according to the spirit. So in Genesis 21, you can look at this later on as well. There's reference to the son of Hagar, who we know as Ishmael, laughing at the son of Sarah. And Sarah doesn't like it. It says he's laughing. I don't know, maybe mocking or jeering. But it says Sarah doesn't like it. And so she basically says, cast out the slave woman and her son. The slave woman and her son shall have nothing to do with the inheritance of my son, she says. And Paul's using this and he brings it into the life of the Galatian church. That's what he tells the Galatian church to do as well. He says, hey, you should expect that the children of the flesh are going to persecute or work against the children born according to the spirit. And he says, there's no room in the church for legalistic slavery inducing dead religion. I think he's telling them to drive faithless legalism and any other false doctrine, salvation, any other false doctrine, salvation. He says, just drive it out of the church. I think we can go further than that. Even Philip Riken says this in his commentary. He says something to the effect of what if, what if we ask God to cast out every last trace of self-sufficient legalism in our own hearts, not just to walk around the church with some sort of, you know, False teaching buzzer, just, just searching it out with a little radar, looking for people, maybe have a speck in their eye. You're walking around looking for the speck. Well, you yourself have a plank in yours. What if we ask God to cast out the man-centered, legalistic, dead religion in our own hearts before we start looking around? Because here's the thing. This is an us problem before it's a them problem. Right? The, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. We get mixed up in this and we start to relate to God wrong. Verse 31 puts an exclamation point on it for us. It says, so brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So how am I functionally relating to God? Do I see some sort of scorn, wrath-filled face as he looks upon me with disappointment at my failings? Or do I look and see a God who knows me at my absolute worst and smiles upon me and delights in me and rejoices over me? Who do I see? Am I acting like a slave 
who's afraid of God? Or am I acting like a child who can freely come be with his father? We're not children of the slave. We, like Isaac, are born of the promise. We are not born of natural, self-sufficient, self-reliant attempts to fulfill the promises of God in our life. We are born of the supernatural, God-dependent, spirit-filled, divine intervention of God. We're children according to the promise. And there's a contrast, as I said, between man-centered religion, dead religion, and a Christ-centered gospel. See, religion is man's self-reliant attempt to be accepted by God, and that leaves us stuck in slavery. But the gospel is God's provision for us to be accepted on the merit of Christ and all he's done, and that leads not to slavery, but to sonship. A religion of self-sufficiency says, the power is in me. And that sounds like freedom, but it's really bondage. How many pervasive cultural worldviews do we have around us where everybody says the power's in you? Oh, the power's in you. The power's in you. No, it's not. That is bondage, and you don't want to live in that kind of system. If somebody says that the power is in you, you have to question the merit of the entire thing. That's bondage. I know me. I don't want the power to be in me. It sounds empowering. It sounds wonderful. You see this in all kinds of different seminars and movements. Oh, the power's locked within you. Unleash your potential. Be your true self. I'm just telling you that's bondage. It leads to slavery because it's man-centered. Oh, but there's a Christ-centered gospel that leads to freedom. So much better. The gospel says it's not what you have done, but what God has done for you. So the power is actually all his. And his salvation in our lives is a gift of grace. That's true freedom. See, a religion of self-reliance says if I fail, it must be because I did something wrong or I didn't measure up. But the gospel says you don't measure up, and that's the point. You never have and you never could. Apart from God's intervening grace, you never will. It's not about what you can do, but it's about what's already been done for you in Christ. It's not something you achieve, it's something you receive. See, a religion of acceptance, where your acceptance is determined by your performance, it's more about you then than it is about God. If the power is in you, and it's about your performance, that's about you, not him. So when things go really well, it's because you're a great success. And when things go really poorly, it's because you're an utter failure. So when you succeed, you fall into pride, and when you fail, you fall into despair. But the gospel says it's actually never been about your faulty, imperfect performance. That the gospel of Jesus says you're accepted not on the basis of your performance, but on the basis of his. That's freedom. Self-reliant religion always leads to bondage. And the gospel always leads to freedom. Because it's through faith in Christ that we're set free. Christians are not slaves, but sons. With a full inheritance. Children of promise. Look what it says in Romans 8. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. 
For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. It's like, Dad. Daddy. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So if you're a son, if you're a child of the full inheritance, I want to tell you five things that are yours. They come out of this passage in Romans 8. If you're a child of God, number one, you have confidence, not fear. You can leave that passage in Romans 8 back up on the screen for me. If you're a child of God, you have confidence, not fear. This is what it says. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. See, a slave is motivated by fear, but a child of God lives in confidence knowing his place. Secondly, if you're a child of God, you have intimacy, not insecurity. But if you have received, this is what it says, if you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. It's like saying, Dad, Papa, whatever you call him. It's a picture of intimacy. A slave is insecure and doesn't know where he stands with his master. But a child can come to his dad and be near. Fathers, when your kid crawls up on your lap, nuzzles in. Children, when you call your dad, and you know he's going to answer because he always does, he's always there. It's a picture of this. Imperfect as it is, it's a picture of this. If you're a child of God, number three, you have assurance, not uncertainty. It says the Spirit himself bears witness within our spirit that we are children of God. See, a slave never knows if her master is pleased with her. But a child of God does not need to doubt her father's love. If you're a child of God, you have number five, or number four, you have inheritance, not debt. So we're children of God, it says, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We have an inheritance, not a debt. See, a slave is conscious of the debt that she owes, but a child of God is conscious of the promise that she's received. It changes the way we look at the world. If you're a child of God, you've got number five, participation, not exclusion. See, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The slave has no share in the glory of his master. But a child of God knows that he has a share in his father's kingdom. If you're a child of God, you've got confidence, not fear. Intimacy, not insecurity. Assurance, not uncertainty. Inheritance, not debt. And participation, not exclusion. Next week we'll see Galatians 5 verse 1 says, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Christ City, this is good news. This is yours in Christ. Would you stand with me as we respond today? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.